listening to the Jelly Donut Podcast. I'm Ryan, your host. Join me as I talk to the best and brightest in finance and economics. We'll go beyond just theory and discuss some of the most important real-world macro questions of our time. What happens next and how does all of this end? Pull up a seat and listen in. We'll talk about it coming up next. Welcome our newest sponsor, Baron Fig. Whether you need pens, notebooks, or bags, they have you covered. Baron Fig makes tools for thinking, and they'll help you do your best thinking at home, work, and in between. And if you're a podcast fan, the small little notebooks they have are great for taking notes to refer back to later. I've been using their products now for, gosh, over five years, and I love the craftsmanship and attention to detail. So if you like the podcast, Show your support to Baron Fig. Go to baronfig.com and use our code JDP10. That's JDP10, and you'll get 10% off your first purchase. So go check it out right now while you're thinking about it. Today's show is brought to you by Kova Coffee. Kova is a specialty roaster out of Portland, Oregon, and they specialize in single origin coffees. They're committed to long term sustainable partnerships with coffee producers. Now, if you're like me, I love coffee. I like to start off with usually one or two cups. I make it by hand at home with a pour over, but it doesn't matter how you make it. You could be using a Mr. Coffee machine. It doesn't matter, but what does matter is the beans. You have to start with really high quality beans and you'll always make sure you have a great cup. So just say no to those burnt, over-roasted corporate coffee beans that you find at a grocery store and upgrade your coffee game I'm going to make it real easy for you. Here's what you do. Just go to kovacoffee.com, that's C-O-A-V-A, coffee.com, and use our code JDP10, that's JDP10, and you get $5 off your first purchase. Do it right now while you're thinking about it. You'll be happy you did. Today in the show, we have Peter Atwater. Peter is the president of Financial Insights and an adjunct professor in the economics department at William & Mary. He's a pioneer in the field of confidence-driven decision-making, studying how and why our confidence level naturally determines consumer preferences, decisions, and actions. Called a favorite source by Rana Fuhar of the Financial Times, Peter's work has influenced the thinking of professional investors, business leaders, and global policymakers. Enjoy my conversation with Peter Atwater. Peter, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Ryan. Well, it's great to have you here. So we're recording here on Friday, March 20th, right before the market closed, coming into a couple hours here. So we're going to have a lot to talk about on what's happened the past couple of weeks. But to kick off the conversation, I always ask guests, going back to 2008 global financial crisis, what was going through your mind? What were you doing professionally at the time? And what were you thinking? So I was actually consulting to some money managers and hedge funds during the financial crisis. Uh, I had had a career on Wall Street, had built J.P. Morgan's asset-backed securities business, 
um, had worked as a bank treasurer, bank one, uh, and so had worked with the rating agencies. So personally, I'm not sure there was a better crisis for all of the different things that I'd done in my career. And so I ended up doing some blogging for Minionville, uh, a site that Todd Harrison had set up, and ended up uh, from that uh, helping some money managers really successfully navigate the crisis. Um, you know, it got, it's a, it's a great example of bad can go to worse. Um, and, you know, certainly if you think about the way people felt the weekend Lehman Brothers collapsed, um, there's some interesting behavioral parallels to uh, what we're experiencing right now. Yeah, and that's really interesting how you were working on some of those esoteric products way back when, and yep. you had some knowledge going into 08, being able to advise certain companies. So let's bring it towards present day. We're recording here on Friday afternoon. Let's talk a little bit about what's going on out there in the markets and how you're viewing just everything that's unfolding. Sure. So if I go back to the beginning of February, um, my feelings then were that investors, uh, the White House, um, you know, that there was an enormous population of people who felt invincible. Um, mm -hmm. You had Tesla stock on a tear. I had students who were coming up to me in the hallway. And I can remember one of them saying, you know, I'm not making enough trading options. What do you think about me moving into the e-mini market and trading futures? Wow. <laughs> like, yeah, I mean, that was a pretty good, you know, maybe not the shoeshine boy um, example from you know, the 1920s, but definitely very reminiscent of student behavior right before the peak of the cryptocurrency bubble. And so there were lots of things that I was seeing that suggested it was a major peak in confidence. Uh, my favorite example is the rally road sale of shares in a single Birkin bag. Um, you know, that kind of mania doesn't last long. And so I had been very cautious um, you know, really at that point that, that confidence was extreme and as a result was very fragile. We were seeing lots of, you know, what I, what I described at the time as a mania in manias, that everything seemed to be vibrating at once. And so I, you know, a lot of people attribute the decline to the coronavirus and I, there's a lot to that. Um, but I think it's important that people appreciate the vulnerability that existed coming into this. Um, you know, I, I always describe confidence like a Lego tower. It takes a long time to build it, but when it becomes really extreme, it's inherently fragile. And so I think what we've been seeing in the last couple of weeks is the true fragility of overconfidence. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And when you look at, Various valuations. How are you looking at different met metrics as far as PE ratios and different types of valuations before this crisis happened? And then, and then how are we looking at things now as far as yeah, our see, on a valuation I, basis? Yeah, I don't look at valuations in the same way I'm not a technician. Um, mm -hmm. What I'm looking at is behaviors. And what are the behaviors telling me about investor confidence? Because I believe that, you know, at extremes in mood, people act like it. 
And so what I'm looking for are signs that we have reached extremes negatively in terms of behaviors that suggest whether it's a bounce or a major low is, has, is in place. So for example, um, today we heard from the governor of New York that he is shutting down the state. Uh, I thought it was interesting that he chose the word you know, grounding um, because it brought back to mind, you know, this, the terminology that was used around 9-11 when, you know, then President George W. Bush grounded all the planes in the air. So I think there's a, a very similar kind of public policy response. And that's one of the things that I've been looking for is an extreme, sweeping, very dramatic action that is intended to put a floor under confidence. Yeah, and you've talked in the past about looking for these kind of narratives and wh whether it's in pop culture or just the overall sentiment. And so we've seen a few of these along the way. Sometimes people will cite like the cover of Barron's or something like that as a paradigm shift, maybe to, to the opposite direction as soon as the, the mood swings so far into one side, as you mentioned. So another example would be the uh, inflation is dead cover from uh, Bloomberg, I believe, Business Week. So talk a little bit about these narratives. And is this a process where this is like a slow moving kind of train wreck or these signs just pile up and there's so many? Or is this something where you can identify maybe even like one sign that shifted things? Or how, how do you, you know, view this type of sentiment analysis in that way? So, so I do think narratives are vital. Um and I think, unfortunately, most economists misread the narratives. Um, mm -hmm. They think of a strong narrative as suggesting a beginning of a trend as opposed to the ending of a trend. Mm -hmm. To me, a, a very recent example of that was the recession scare from last August, where all of a sudden everybody's talking about recession. They're Googling recession like there's no tomorrow. And you had people saying, oh, it's going to happen, it's going to happen. And I'm like, no, the fact that we all now expect it to happen suggests it's not going to. And that's, that's the nature of narratives is that when they become so saturating, then that's when the, the trend change is upon us and is likely to be quite dramatic. Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. Um, I, I want to touch, though, on your comment about covers. I think Barron's is a dreadful indicator. Um, okay. <laughs> and I say that not because the folks at Barron's do a bad job. I don't think they do. But Barron's is intended to be both provocative and affirming to its readers. Mm -hmm. And so I don't think it's nearly as useful as something like Time Magazine or, you know, Bloomberg is another, it tends not to be um, provocative. It tends to be very confirming as well. Mm -hmm. um, and so I think some of it is choosing what it, what indicators you look at. The other thing about a, a contrarian indicator is it should be laughable. Mm -hmm. You should feel very lonely in using it as an indicator on a contrarian basis. 
And that's one of the places where Twitter is so helpful to me because, you know, you'll see a cover and everybody's like, oh, this is a contrarian indicator. It's a contrarian indicator. It's like, no, nah, if everybody feels that way, it's not a contrarian indicator at all. Right. That makes a lot of sense as far as, you know, where the sentiment is. And this, if everyone is really thinking something's going to happen or if, if it's already been kind of priced in in that way, then it makes sense that the chances are that it's not going to happen. Now, a lot of people pointed to that and, and used that as kind of an excuse for this longest running bull market that I guess maybe it came to an end or is coming to an end right now as far as that longest expansion in U.S. history, whereas people were just not people were just looking the example that was used a few times on the podcast was you know after 2008 you're looking two and three times before you cross the street this time you're not just you know going out and looking and if everyone is just so concerned about this risk then it that means the market is not going to go down or the market is is safe in that way how do you think about that in the context of something like this virus which was a completely kind of black swan event so I've been watching anxiety rise as the virus has approached us um, psychologically. Mm-hmm. I think it's important to sort of step back and say, you know, just eight weeks ago, people perceived the virus as being contained in China. And that's a really significant perception and very significant and important narrative because it had this this predatory threat way away from us and unlikely to to make us in some way vulnerable. And what you've seen is that as it has neared us psychologically as much as physically, people's anxiety has skyrocketed. And that's quite natural. You know, it, it's we feel very different when the hurricane is a thousand miles offshore versus 10 miles offshore and we're in a beach house. So I think that what we're seeing and have seen over the last couple of weeks has been this accelerating sense of panic. Um, I think it's quite natural. The virus is invisible. It makes us feel quite vulnerable. We feel powerless. Things feel uncertain. Um, and so to me, it was very natural that there would be some sort of a panic to it. Now, I think that the panic phase of this event is pretty well past us. And I say that watching, you know, looking at indicators like the VIX, um, looking at the speculation that took place earlier this week in, in instruments like um, uh, TVIX, the, the leverage uh, ETF on volatility. I mean, people were, were crazy about it. And so you saw a frenzy in terms of people wanting to buy volatility. And that's, that to me is an indicator of uh, some sort of a capitulation climaxing event. That makes sense. We saw a couple of these ETFs have some real liquidity issues. So that will be something to watch. I mean, we saw some really crazy price action, especially when you look at the 10 year. I think it got down to like 31 basis points. The long bond got down to 70 something basis points. So now when you're looking at this market action compared to other events like we saw in the past, other crises. How are you thinking about this market going forward now along the the lines of the economy? 
not so much the so, stock market. Yeah, so I think we're we're have sort of gone from the denial phase, and now we're beginning the acceptance phase and and learning how do we adapt to this. And and there, I think it's going to be very fragile for a while. Um, you know, one of the things about panic is we feel if 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 it's occurred. Um, we feel very vulnerable that it could happen again. And so I sort of feel like we are, from an investing perspective, like somebody who's had a panic attack and now is really, really worried about having another one. And the, the problem with that is that it creates a cascading effect, that one panic leads into another. So what I'm watching closely is how are public policymakers acting and where are we in terms of putting a floor under the confidence that relates to the virus itself? Um, I've said to a number of people, until there is a sense of physical well-being, there is no basis for confidence in the economy. We've been traumatized by this. People will be reluctant to return to life as normal until they're certain that the virus has been vanquished. And so I think until that perception begins to become comfortable, the economy remains extremely vulnerable. Yeah, and when you look at the tools out there, we've talked on the show in the past about the Fed's tools and their toolbox they like to use or their toolkit. And so far they've been throwing some things at the, this market. It looks like they're going to try to backstop maybe even money market funds now. And they're going to, they're so far opened up the liquidity lines to be able to buy treasuries and MBS. It looks like across the curve all the way to the longer maturities with the most recent repo hiccup that happened. It was just on the 30 day bills, the really short end of the curve. So obviously large scale asset purchases what else is left in the toolbox They could take rates negative? They could ban short selling. They could maybe even close markets down. But some of these are like last resort type of functions, I think. Yeah. And so none of those to me would be surprising if we see another major leg down. Um, you know, if you're a policymaker, you have no choice but to respond with the tools available and to the extent that the existing tools aren't sufficient to do things that are more dramatic and, and um, in larger scale in order to, to stem the perception of crisis. Um, you know, one of the things that I think needs to be done, and I've been saying this quite a bit, is we need to rethink the top-down, sort of trickle-down approach that was taken in 2008. And, and to have things being done simultaneously from a bottoms-up perspective. This is, this is a humanitarian crisis. And so we need to ensure that individuals are adequately supported through this. And this is a place where the, the asymmetry in the recovery, the fact that we have clear confidence haves and have-nots, um, needs to be taken into consideration. We have a, we have a large population in America that came into this crisis un, unequipped, unprepared, um, 
not because they chose to, but because their condition in life never enabled them to to replenish the, the cupboard before the storm hit again. Yeah, and so they're looking at a few different options. It looks like they want to get checks out to people. At first, they were just going to do a payroll tax holiday, I guess, which wasn't going to be enough. What do you think the best course of action is now to be able to fix those issues you just talked about? I, I think the sooner the federal government puts money in the hands of cities and states, the better. Mm-hmm. Um, and this, is, this is a time where the distribution of cash locally matters so much that I think we have to figure out a way to, to accelerate the migration and, and if necessary, make, you know, put towns and cities around the country responsible for the distribution to their communities. Yeah. And as far as when you look at these companies coming forward and are already talking about a lifeline that they need, whether it's the airlines, I know the cruise ships have been talked about and now other industries are coming forward. How, how is the best way to handle that piece? They've been talking about, okay, these companies started buying back a lot of their stock and using the free cash flow for that instead of reinvesting and being able to have some reserves. So that's come up as a point of contention, but do we have, do we backstop these companies and what would be the best way to do that? Well, I think we need to backstop the industries Uh and the workers and the critical functions that some of these companies play. That's different though, from bailing out the shareholders of these companies. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think, you know, bank failures are a great example of where you can save critical creditors, you can save employees, you can save valuable institutions, but not necessarily save the the equity holders in the process. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, if it were me, I would be looking at, you know, whether it's debt guarantees or debt, you know, credit facilities with serious equity stakes. Um, you know, corporations came into this voluntarily unprepared. It was not, it wasn't that they couldn't be prepared. It's that they chose not to be. And so I don't think, you know, I, I appreciate that this was to them an out of the blue crisis but I think that we also need to recognize that coming into this crisis, um, shareholders were extraordinarily well, um, well enriched. And, uh, you know, this is a time of burden sharing. I think everybody is going to be asked to, to participate. The, the, the magnitude of the, of the response is such that um, everyone is going to have to contribute in some way. Yeah, and as you mentioned, let's say maybe the common stock gets wiped out or you know, wherever you are in the capital structure, you can go from common to preferred to the different debt tranches. But is that something that you could see happening where maybe a large portion of the common stock gets wiped out, but the company still remains intact? Something along oh, those yeah. lines? Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, we, we, we've been there before. I mean, look at GM, look at AIG. I mean, there, there's a way to, to sustain, you know, important elements of the economy 
and not, you know, not over enrich shareholders in the process. Yeah. And so when you're looking now, as you talked about the different narratives and how that information kind of shifts and sways public perception, what do, as you mentioned, you know, the market is kind of looking to be able to come through and stop this feedback loop where it just keeps selling off. And obviously now they're doing press conferences every day. I just saw Trump was doing another press conference with a whole group of people around him. So if I know the press conferences started off, I guess pretty bad would be the word. I mean, it started with this is a hoax, or or at least the media is calling this a hoax, or wh- whatever the comment was, all the way to now, you know, you should just stay home and this is a lockdown. So, you know, without talking about the politics piece, you know, where are we in this the kind of uh, na- the narrative piece with these press conferences and with the messaging coming out of? Our leaders. I, I think what the press conferencing press conferences are confirming to me is that until there is stability in the viral outbreak, the markets are vulnerable. Yeah. I mean, if you if you look at how markets trade, whether it's during the presidential press conferences or the state of New York press conferences or the California press conferences, what's becoming very clear is that the only thing in investors' mind right now is the virus. Yeah. Yeah, it's the only thing that matters. (laughs) Now, when you're looking at going out over the next, obviously this shelter-in-place thing is going to last minimum two to three weeks or up to a month and maximum. Who knows how long this could be? This could be months and months and months. How are you just from a more personal standpoint with your students and people that you interact with, even the financial professionals and things for your side business? I, I, you know, remind people that this is for now, you know, environments of extreme uncertainty and vulnerability, that they're intense, um, but they are not long lasting and I and long lasting, you know, when I say not long lasting, I don't mean it'll be done tomorrow, but I feel pretty confident that by, you know, the end of 2020, we will have a much better sense as to, you know, where things are, are headed from there. Um, I think this is a marathon, not a sprint. I think we need to be increasingly aware that flattening the curve doesn't necessarily represent a point at which confidence bottoms. Um, you know, again, it's the perception of vulnerability that is going to be most important ahead. Yeah. And you can look back to certain, I remember the mission accomplished uh, with George W. Bush. Do you think that, I mean, people have been waiting for certain leadership signals and I know the first well, it wasn't a press conference, but when Trump addressed the nation, um, I think it was about a week ago. I can't even remember. You know, that was kind of a big turning point where it was just more very somber and just kind of reading off the teleprompter and no questions or things like that. It sounds like there's the market, like you said, is looking for for that sentiment shift to be able to really feel like things are under control. Yeah, and I don't think the federal government 
and this to me is not a it's not a Republican or Democratic thing. Um, confidence is going to be formed at an individual, then a family, then a community level basis first, well before there is a sense of national, you know, national recovery. And so I, I it, you know, think about it already. Nobody cares what the World Health Organization thinks or is saying today. Mm-hmm. We've moved well past them. It, the, the problem feels much more localized. And so I think that Washington needs to recognize that, that all the jawboning in the world at this point isn't going to be helpful or useful until people can see it themselves in their own local communities that things are safer, that it's okay to walk around. And I don't think we're anywhere near that that position yet. Yeah, I know they've been talking about, well, I know San Francisco did a complete lockdown. Los Angeles did a lockdown. So we, and most of the counties have already followed up, even if it's a unincorporated city, then the counties have issued their lockdown as well. Mm-hmm. And there's talks about maybe having the National Guard come in on, I know, on a state-by-state basis. Do you think that's something that would actually maybe have people give people more fear if they see the National Guard and then, you know, give them a, kind of a sense of more fear in the, in the community? Or on the opposite side, I know people have talked about, well, that's actually going to be much better because it, it at least it will force people to stay home and then we'll be able to, you know, recover from this faster, I guess. Yeah, I, I don't think that the imposition of martial law um, at this point is would be viewed as a, as a negative. I think that um, the U.S. military is extremely high, highly regarded uh, coming into this crisis. It had the highest approval rating uh, in terms of competence of any arm of the U.S. government. And so I think that there will be people who take great comfort in the fact that Policymakers have brought in uh, teams that will help enforce the quarantining um, in an effort to mitigate the the contagion. Yeah, and let's talk a little bit about your financial insights and what you do there, and what some of the things you're you're talking to your clients about. And so, what I do is i I look at the world around us. Um, in terms of behaviors, what are people doing uh, politically, socially, economically, financially, uh, culturally, uh, in terms of their decision making? Um, you know, the world is an incredibly rich mosaic in which to observe social mood at work. And I believe, as a socioeconomist, that mood is the driver of, of what we do. And so what I do with Financial Insights is I look around every week and say, these behaviors are telling me this about how people feel. And I'm looking to see, is that, are those behaviors being uh, reflected in, in financial asset values? And if they are, um, whether that, you know, whether we've reached an extreme, um, you know, as I said, in, in early February, the extreme looking politically, socially, economically was pretty clear. Um, I thought it was very significant uh, on the cultural front, for example, that when the Grammys came out, um, it was not Taylor Swift who won, but Billie Eilish. 
Billie Eilish won the most Grammys of any artist since um, the depths of the um, stock market lows in 1980. And so you have this interesting bookending of this rally since then. And, uh, you know, uh, Billie Eilish's music is uh, far darker than uh, somebody like Taylor Swift's that I think culture moves ahead of uh, the financial markets. So I, I thought that was a, a compelling signal and shared it with my clients. That's interesting. And when you look at this information in the reading you do, is this more of a qualitative type analysis or is there any way to quantify some of this data that you're looking at at all? So in the work that I do, it, it is qualitative. Um, I will use things like Google Trends um, to look at key parts of our narrative. Um, you know, Google Trends for recession, for example, were really helpful um, last August uh, in demonstrating sort of the, the climax. Um, you know, over the past couple of weeks, I've been tracking everything from hand sanitizer to stockpiling wow. to the stock market to, you know, I, I, you know, if we feel it, we search for it on Google um, or with Google. And so, you know, Google Trends tells us a lot about how we feel. Yeah, that's really interesting. I see here on your Twitter a couple of days ago, you posted a, a a screenshot of Google Trends with unemployment benefits, which looks yeah. like we're, we're ticking up there pretty fast. Yeah, I mean, that's one that I've been watching closely for the past couple of months because I felt that if people were losing their jobs, the first thing they would search for is unemployment benefits. And sadly, the, the, the trend data is telling us um, that there are a lot of people who have just uh, lost their jobs. Yeah, it's pretty unfortunate to think about and kind of extrapolate. I know a friend of mine actually called me up the other day and said he was going to start filing for the unemployment and um, he works in the food service industry. And um, he said it was actually really complicated just to figure out how to do all the forms properly and everything. So, you know, there's going to be a lot of things that people don't think about kind of the nuance there. People say, people might think, okay, these people can just go on unemployment, but that, you know, there's a lot that goes through that whole process as well. And there's a time lag there of, of even getting into the system and getting checks out. So yeah, that's just one example of things that take longer than people might think. Yeah. And that's not going to help people's stress levels. Yeah. Not by, I mean, this, this is a time where the solutions need to be immediate, individualized and simple. And nothing that I've seen to date from Washington meets those criteria. Yeah. Now, lastly, I wanted to ask a little bit about the teaching and how you feel about like the remote teaching and how you know this could be kind of a shift there. Some people are talking about this could be kind of a shift in sentiment there, where people realize maybe more online classes become popular, but you know, on the other side of that, it's really tough in a lot of ways to replicate that in-person experience. How do you think that this is going to, as a college professor, um, impact kind of teaching and how people look at remote learning and things like that? Or is it too early to even, you know, talk about, I guess. I think it's too early, but I also wouldn't underestimate the, the challenge of educating people in an environment of great stress. Yeah. Um, this is not 
you know, if, if I were doing a test of online learning, um, this is not a test environment that I would would be encouraging people to use in terms of extrapolating the experience. Um, you know, students, faculty, people are very focused on the outbreak. And so until that is, you know, calmed down, um, student focus, professor focus is going to be in a lot of other places. And so I think one of the challenges is that you then compound that with distance. Um, it's, it's going to be a very challenging learning environment and teaching environment. Um, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I know uh, people are looking at certain companies like Zoom and different technology companies that will benefit from this and um, be able to be, you know, make tools and help people at least communicate remotely. Um, and I know that people are already doing that so far. Um, but yeah, Peter, why don't you in closing here, talk a little bit about how people can find your work and where your work is actually geared towards uh, type of customers. Yeah. So most of my work is geared towards, um, institutional and professional investors. Um, you know, I don't offer my services to retail investors, um, largely because I found that, uh, so much of what I suggest is very contrarian. And so retail investors tend to um, appreciate the input, don't, but don't, you know, don't execute. And so uh, to me, that's a waste of their money. And, and I, I hate to see that. So, you know, my, my, my work tends to be um, looked at by institutional investors uh, in the same way that they might hire an economist or someone to offer perspective that is that is broader than just the markets and um, in what I do, as I said, I've, I'm looking at everything from politics to to place. It's uh, you know what's the world around us telling us about how we feel. Uh, folks can find me at peteratwater.com um, or Financial Insights. That's great, Peter. Well, you outlined some really interesting examples of how you look at the world and parse down data and be able to disseminate that to clients. So we're going to link uh, your Twitter handle here and your website in the show notes for uh, institutional investors that are interested in the research. And um, we really appreciate you coming on. You're very welcome, Ryan. I appreciate the opportunity. Thanks, Peter. Thanks for joining us today. If you enjoyed the show, we encourage you to tell a friend. You can also support the show for as little as a dollar a month through our Anchor website. Just go to www.jellydonutpodcast.com. If you have feedback, find us on Twitter, at JellyDonutPod, or you can contact us via email at JellyDonutPodcast at ProtonMail.com. As a reminder, all opinions expressed by guests are solely their own and do not reflect the views of their employer or any other affiliated entity. This podcast is for informational purposes only 
and should not be used as a basis for investment decisions or advice.